0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and committed to bringing you ideas and resources that will help you build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening, and if you're a current nonprofit leader or hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with philanthropic experts who are really on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would, do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so we can continue to build the global community that's focused on nonprofit leadership. Had a fantastic conversation this episode with Matt Larson, who brings great experience both in the business and the charitable sectors. Now, Matt had multi-million dollar success in the tech and software business before he was 40 years old. But you know, he didn't rest on his accomplishments then and has now turned his attention to a nonprofit called the Human Improvement Project, which has developed the Happy Child app, which is actually the number one parenting app in the world. So, if you're thinking there might be some nonprofit leadership lessons Matt could share with us based on his success, you'd be exactly right. We dive into multiple topics that highlight entrepreneurial lessons that you need to bring to your nonprofit organization. One of my favorites is, of course, productivity, and Matt has certainly demonstrated expertise there. We also talked about strategic focus. How do you prioritize with so many things on your plate? And perhaps most importantly, how do you assure that you have A players at your organization? Talent is everything, both as a volunteer and your staff and board, for that matter. And Matt has great ideas as to how you can assure you've got excellence at every level. Well, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 86. Just go to the podcast or the news page at patentmcdowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources mentioned, as well as more information on Matt and the great work he's doing through the Human Improvement Project. While you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Sign up for our email list so you can get our free weekly resources and information on episodes just like this one as well as letting us help you and your nonprofit maybe build that strategic plan or re-engage your board, or maybe it's just simply helping you determine the next step on your journey to nonprofit leadership. We can help you through coaching, training, or perhaps one of our mastermind programs, the latest of which just kicked off last week. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matt Larson. Matt, thank you for joining me on the
1: path. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited for this conversation, Matt. You have had some incredible success uh, throughout your business and entrepreneurial career, but you've also maintained a heart and a mind for philanthropy. And I think that's impressive, and certainly for our audience of nonprofit leaders. And I'm excited to continue a conversation you and I had before the holidays. Around some of the lessons you've learned in leadership and entrepreneurship that very much apply to nonprofit leaders. And so we'll dive into that more deeply. But maybe let's start with this. You know, matt, you you had success. talk about that, but tell us how you still have ended up in this philanthropic leadership space as well.
1: Well, um, I think my my wife and I always felt that it was really important for us to do something that was, Um, you know, more significant than, than just making money, um, you know, just sort of enriching ourselves. We, you know, I think all of us probably want to have this, this bigger mission. And so I think we always felt pretty strongly that, you know, our, the reason why we felt like we were on the planet wasn't to buy a nicer car, you know, that type of thing, but, you know, had some, some bigger purpose on that. And some of that is, is our family is, you know, raising our three kids and, and you know some of those other personal relationships and so on but i think we always we often kind of felt like you know we need to do something i i do have this sort of philosophy that we we get you know a lot of our success we think of is as our as our own we think well i decided to work really hard or i happen to be pretty smart or something like that and so this success that i've had is really me and i don't think that you know the science would really bear that out i think you know, a lot of the things, like how smart somebody is, even how hard they work, and so on, have a lot to do with with things that you really didn't choose, of uh, you know, for yourself. So, um, although I don't want to minimize those things, I think you know we tend to pat ourselves on the back a little too easily, rather than sort of realize, you know, I didn't choose the country I was born in, I didn't choose you know, the race I had, you know, I, I didn't choose, you know, the the, the level of, uh, you know, economic well-being that my parents may have had and just, you know, factor after factor, we had nothing to do with. So I think to yeah, us, yeah. it was, um, you know, just important to realize that, you know, we've you know, been given a certain set of skills and talents and that, that happened to be, you know, valuable in, in the world that we live in. Um, but it's important that we take that and we use that for something that has real value rather than um, just sort of showing our importance by accumulating, you know, things that show, uh, you know, how, how important we are.
0: Yes. So well put Matt. And I think it's important for all of us to remember and nonprofit leaders included that we are part of a larger ecosystem, so to speak. And you are nice to, to mention that and, and it has supported you, but, you have indeed brought a lot to the table. Maybe for our listeners, talk about some of the business that you have built and sold in some cases. Uh, Obviously, technology has been a big part of that, but maybe you could share with our listeners the nature of the work you have done in your career. Sure.
1: So I've um, I've, I've run a number of uh, software companies, I think almost all of them were were in software of one one shape or another. So right. founded companies, um, some worked, some did not, some have failed. I think that's a really critical part of success is that you know, you have to realize that uh, there's there's going to be failure. In fact, there's there's sort of this idea that if you aren't failing, then you probably aren't trying something hard enough for you. Um,
0: so Good point. Like
1: you know, in your career, it's like oh, this is working and that's working. Then you're probably not trying hard enough things. So I'm a big believer that you kind of need to see uh, failure to to you know to know that you're you're reaching high enough. So I, you know I've had that, but I've been um, but I've had some companies be you know be very successful. Um, and uh, I'm currently the the chairman of two software companies. Um, and so, you know, I've had just a, you know, a lot of that. I I feel like a a certain part of my life, I was very focused on the science of scaling companies. And so we can talk about that if, if that's helpful, but, um, but, but yeah, from a, from a business perspective, it was mostly software and, um, just scaling up those, those companies.
0: Yeah. I love that. And of course I've read up some on some of it. It's fascinating work you've done and, in fact, I was going to ask you specifically, can you talk about the Human Improvement Project? You know, the title alone, uh, to me, uh, attracts attention. But maybe share a little bit with our listeners about what that is.
1: Sure. Well, it, it might be helpful to kind of talk about how it came about, because I think that, sure. that kind of explains that. So. Um, I had sold one of my uh, software companies. I sold it to a public company and, you know, everybody in the company, well, not everybody, but probably every, the vast majority of, of employees made a lot of money. It was kind of this big success. And I felt pretty good about that. You know, that, that, that I achieved some goals that I had set for myself, but I ended up actually having, um, after I sold the company, I kind of went into a bit of a depression and really? that, was sort of one thing to me that was like, something's wrong here. Like somehow, you know, I I knew success wasn't everything and all of that, but I had a good family and, um, you know, all of that type of stuff. And it just felt like something, you know, was wrong here. So I think that was, um, that was sort of one moment in here. Another moment that happened, I was actually working with some investors to to maybe have me go run another company. So this group of investors was going to buy a company. I was going to run it. Um, and so we were you know flying around the country, you know looking at companies where that you know that might be possible. And I remember having a conversation with them where um, somehow it came up that that they always fly first class, and that even though they have a young a young a junior person who's you know just a couple of years out of school, and that they always fly first class. and but we were talking about some of the people they work with only fly private jets and so it was this very sort of strange conversation and then I remember them joking that they make the junior person you know again probably 26 year old they make them sit back and coach and I remember that 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 joke seemed so oh it kind of gave me this sick feeling right yes. of talking about oh I prefer yes. private jets and you know this type of thing and here there's a we're in a you know basically a limousine and there's a limousine driver hearing all this and I thought man this is you know, what must be going through that guy's mind, sort of hearing this joke of making somebody fly back and coach, just it's, it really shocked me and kind of made me think, this is not, this is not a path I want to keep going. I don't, I don't want to be having, you know, uh, you know, complaining about private jet conversations. Yeah. Right? Yeah, just, absolutely. Something that was something really wrong there. So that was something else that kind of happened during that period. But really the most important thing that happened was, I was walking with the person who would later help me co-found the Human Improvement Project, and we asked a pretty simple question, and the question was, or I I first asked this question, I said, what's the most important thing that I could do to increase my well-being and the long-term well-being of, of my family? And I realized I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what was the most important thing I was supposed to work on. And this other person who also happened to be a, a tech uh, CEO, he didn't have the answer to it either. And we thought, well, that's that's really strange that we don't even really have a good sense of it. Is it. Is it we should exercise more? Should we eat healthier? Should we go get a different degree? Like we just had no idea where that would go. So what we decided to do was to Uh, fund a small um, clinical trial. So we hired participants, and then we also hired a bunch of experts, psychologists and psychiatrists and uh, medical people and nutritionists and fitness people and and you name it. And so the experts would then give us a set of questions and we would go to a participant and we would ask that participant uh, all of these questions. And then we would take the answers back to the experts and they would ask follow-up questions. And we just go back and forth. Until the experts basically said, okay, we think the number one issue for this participant is X. And we think the number one participant for this other one is Y. And, but what what shocked us was that all of our participants had only one of two things was always at the top of their list. Just really.
0: Yeah.
1: We thought, well, we've never heard of these two things. They're at the top of everybody's list. What is going on? Well, we ended up talking to more experts and finally somebody said, you guys rediscovered what Harvard and the CDC discovered in the, you know, in, in the recent past. And by the way, this is responsible for, um, it's it's a, the primary reason for criminal behavior, for mental health issues like anxiety, depression, anger, uh, bullying, homelessness, drug and alcohol addiction, you know, poverty. I mean, it was just stunning. Like, wait, you're basically saying these two issues are causing, you know, these
0: everything else, everything else. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, it was crazy. And I said, how is it you guys know this, and the public doesn't know this. And, and I remember one professor saying, Matt, I've been giving talks on this stuff for 20 years. And they just don't, um, it just doesn't resonate with the public. I can't, I, you know, I'm, we're doing our best here, but it's, it's not working. Well, it turns out that me and this other tech CEO had really been focused in our, in our professional career into, into two things that I'll call. One is the science of communication and the other one is the science of scaling. So the science of communication is this process where you really have to test all of your messaging to make sure that it really resonates with um, with, you know, the, wh- whatever you're trying to sell. Right. And most people just don't go through that, that message, that messaging science at all. Um, and so we said, well, it doesn't look like, you know, the academics have really done a very good job on that. So we'll, we'll try to do that. Um, and the second thing that, that it didn't seem like they really knew how to do was scale this up to a large group. Um, they, they tend to, you know, want to do things like have, Uh, Classrooms and have, you know, get people to come into a classroom and, you know, this, you know, rent, uh, you know, rooms in the basement of a church and try to get the local community to come there for something. It's just this sort of very low tech, you know, way of doing that. So we decided we were going to go out and uh, really try to use the science of communication and the science of scale to see if we could find a way to communicate this to the public, and so that's what we did. So we ended up, you know, spending a lot of time on that. We had, you know, hundreds of people review each lesson, and and we found out that not only the way were the, the the way that the that the sort of the academics trying to talk about it, it not only were their terminologies not good. They were horrible. They were almost as bad a terminology, a messaging as you could, you know, as you could get, it was almost as if you, they purposely did it that bad. Of course they didn't. It just, (laughs) it was that bad. bad. Yeah. They, they rolled the dice and it just turned out it was absolutely the worst possible um you know, terminology to use. So we ended up you know doing that. and then you know our apps uh, launched six, eight months ago and and now they're the the top uh, parenting apps in the world. Uh, they have you know an average uh, of four point nine something rating out of five stars are
0: that's awesome.
1: The highest rated ones in the world. And so anyways, it's it's really taken off, and we're we're educating you know the the public through this you know the human improvement project, and it's it's just growing you know very very rapidly but but that's kind of the story of of the project
0: but what and Matt just to be clear so what are the two factors that your study confirmed that are kind of the root of so many of the issues in our society that I guess Harvard had also found but you found as well I want to make sure I lift up what are those two factors?
1: Yeah so the so the first factor so these are both chemicals in our body and they're so we have chemicals in our body hormones in our bodies that do lots of things so a certain home hormone might do 15 things in your body so the first one is called cortisol and cortisol does all sorts of good things in your body it um and one of them is it it makes us like do things on time like Cortisol is, you know, what makes us nervous when we're about to be, you know, late to get our kids to school. So it's yep, got yep. a lot of good things, but cortisol in one very specific situation, which is when we're nervous that something's about to happen that will cause our emotions to suddenly plummet, that's the first predictor of long-term well-being. So gotcha. I'll give you know examples of this. You could have, you know, kind of a a, a pretty serious example of this might be somebody. Um, who was, uh, you know, physically abused as a child. So they will be in this constant state of alert, of nervousness that, that people, you know, might attack them kind of going forward. So that, that's an example. Um, but a more common example that is, happens in just about every family, including my own, is a parent might be sarcastic or critical maybe once a month. And it turns out that happened in my family. So I asked one of my kids, Hey, you know, are you ever nervous when you're around me that I might say something that would, you know, would hurt your feelings? One of my kids said yes, all the time. I'm always nervous and it turned out I would make a what I thought was a funny comment, it was a sarcastic comment, and maybe I was doing it once a month and that comment might last, you know, 10 seconds. But but my child was nervous the entire month when he was around me. Wow. And so it's that level of, you know, on alert, that nervousness that something's about to happen. Um, that's the number one predictor. And our apps get into, you know, get into it in more detail on how to solve it and all that. But that's the first one. The second. And so we call that one, the long-term unhappiness chemical. The more cortisol you have that you're nervous, something bad's about to happen, the lower your long-term well-being will be. Makes That's sense. number one. Yep. The second one is what we call the long-term happiness chemical, and that is oxytocin. And again, oxytocin has good things and bad things, and it's used for a whole bunch of things in our body. But we're only talking about it in one specific situation, and that is the amount of oxytocin released in safe relationships. So a really simple example of, of this is giving hugs. Um, uh, a, a more complex example of this is having a deep bond with somebody. So our apps teach the science of building deep bonds. It turns out bonds are kind of random for us. We don't we bond. That's how we kind of go. Oh, you know, I'm good friends with this person, but not with that person, and it's not really clear why. It feels kind of random. Right. That's because we don't understand the science of deep bonds, and it turns out. That also happens with our kids. So statistically, a parent is unlikely to have a deep bond with their adult child unless they learn how to do it just for the same reasons, right? They just, yeah, they're, you know, the personalities are a little different or they have different interests. Um, so, so deep bonds are the most important way, the deepest way to build oxytocin, but it can be as simple as just giving more hugs. And with oxytocin, when when we have young children, we give them huge amounts of oxytocin, we're hugging them all the time and picking them up and playing with them. And, and all that physical touch is giving them, you know, this healthy oxytocin. But as they get older and older, we stop hugging them as much, we give them way less oxytocin, That's right? Starving them of that. Yep. It's the same thing in our romantic relationship. So a, a new romantic relationship, lots of that, right? You're holding hands all the time, you're <laughs> hugging all the time, you're out in public, it right. You know, people are joking, get a room, kind of thing, but um, but you're getting tons of oxytocin, and but because we see that as a young relationship issue, as our you know our relationship you know gets older and older, we stop doing those things, and that turns out we we basically starve each other of the long-term happiness chemical, and it has all sorts of you know of issues. There's a lot of tension in relationships, is because of that, and. We just have no idea, right? we we think it's because they clean the, you know, they don't do the dishes as often as we do, but in reality, it's, it's, it's basically these two chemicals. They're either emotionally ambushing us. They're making us be nervous when we're around them. That's the cortisol issue or, and, or they're not giving us enough oxytocin. We're not holding hands enough, um, you know, that type of thing. So like when my wife and I have coffee in the morning, we sit up against each other on the couch when we watch TV before we, you know, go to bed, we're holding hands. Now we're not trying to be particularly sweet at that moment, but we know that oxytocin is really important. So those are the two things: the long-term happiness chemical and the, and the long-term unhappiness one.
0: Matt, I'm guessing you'd agree that you know while we're not holding hands at work, but are there organizational implications? I guess for some of these things, particularly in this current kind of isolated environment, would would you see um, that this transfers to? The organizational dynamics, not just kind of interpersonal family type it activity. It,
1: it, it does. So, um, so Google did some studies where they were trying to figure out what makes a high performing team, and they did a bunch of experiments. I don't remember them all exactly, but they might they you know they put the smartest they took the smartest people and they put them in a group, uh, and that didn't seem to work. They put the highest performers in a group. That didn't seem to work. They put the introverts in one group and the extroverts, and you know that didn't work. What turned out to, to be the most successful teams were the ones that had emotional safety. So that means inside the team, I felt like I could give my idea and people wouldn't be, they wouldn't give me that look like, oh, that was a dumb idea. Exactly. Or they wouldn't you know attack me or attack the idea. That ended up being the number one thing. Well, that's cortisol, right? So basically when I, you know, if you're one of those team members, if you're nervous that you know, whatever you suggest is going to get shot down, that's that elevated cortisol level, right? So absolutely, it does. And and the same thing with oxytocin, we're not getting enough oxytocin in our work environments right now, unfortunately, due to COVID. So it isn't good for us that we're not, you know, seeing people face to face, uh, because uh, that releases oxytocin. So essentially, the you get more oxytocin the more you would only do this some, this thing with somebody really close to you. So um, if I text you, there's no oxytocin, right? So right. that form of communication is particularly bad for long-term happiness. If we have a phone call, I can hear your voice, you can hear mine, we'll get a little bit. So that's better. That's actually a lot better than texting. It's probably a you know, hundred times better than texting, <laughs> I right. that's, that's right. guess. Video is even better, right? Because now we can see eye to eye and that releases more oxytocin, right? So that sort of steps it up a notch, but that's not the same, but that's not as high as if we're in the same room, right? We're at the office, we're talking to each other over a cooler, that's even higher, right? And then you get into, you know, romantic relationships and stuff where you're holding hands and stuff like that. But but absolutely, they're both being affected um, really in a negative way for you know, inside of organization structures. And so I think, you know, for long-term happiness reasons, we are going to need to, you know, get back to things where uh, where we're addressing both of those. In particular, we, you know, socialization uh, is, is is really critical, uh, you know, inside of organizations.
0: That's so well put. But it seems like on the hierarchy of that scale, you just mentioned, if I'm a nonprofit leader, at least video conferencing where possible should be kind of the... Uh, process we should choose, correct, as opposed to, and I think too many of us are guilty of, you're right, we text our way because we think it's efficient. But in your point is that could be in the long
1: term, detrimental. That's right. And there's, you know, there's some reasons, you know, go pick up the milk kind of thing, you know, or that, you know, that type of stuff, sometimes, obviously, you you need to do that. But, um, you know, in general, let's say you were checking in with a loved one, you know, you have a you know, a parent, you know, who's who's maybe older or something, texting them would definitely not be, you know, good for their, their <laughs> right. happiness, right?
0: Well, Matt, this is fascinating science. And, and I think, again, I know our listeners are going to want to look more into the work you're doing there and the apps. And of course, we'll include that in our show notes. But I want to, of course, tap into your leadership lessons. Um, and several you've already mentioned in terms of the, I guess, team dynamic, you mentioned, and I want to ask you to start with it, uh, Kind of the the, the uh, approach to growth and scaling. And a lot of nonprofit organizations are, you know, they know there is potential to have more impact in their communities, but maybe you could speak to that. What were some of the kind of characteristics you were looking for that told you, you know, it was time to grow and take a good idea and scale it further?
1: Well, so I spent a lot of time um, when I first became a CEO and my very first CEO role, I spent a lot of time going out and talking to executives at uh, fast-growing companies. Um, Some of them were directly in our space. Some of them were actually competitors. I was shocked that they would... Tell, you know basically meet and tell me all their secrets but they did <laughs> wow um, but but some were in sort of adjacent fields and and so on so so I did a lot of that I, I recommend that of sort of find the the ones who are being successful find a way to talk to them and figure out specifically what it was because what we found were you know there were very specific marketing uh, technology technologies, for example, that they, that they were using, we had never heard of them before. And then, you know, we we met, it. but when we first heard of them, we're like, I don't really know, that doesn't seem like that'd be that valuable. But we met with, you know, we might then meet with another executor, uh, executive of a fast growing company, saw that they did the same thing. And that executive did do a better job of understanding the science of what was happening and explaining it to us. Well, you know, then it sort of was open, you know, opened our eyes and we're like, wow, okay, that's why you're doing that. And then, you know, we would go do do the same thing. So that, that, you know, from a scalability perspective, I think what, what people often do is what I call logic based management. They say, well, what should we do here? You know, in, in some business situation, what marketing thing should we run? Right. And they go, well, I'm going to use my brain, right? I'm a smart person. I'm gonna use my brain. And that's what I call logic based management. And it's, 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 it's a really poor way of doing it because your experience is just so limited, all of ours. There's nobody, no single person you know, has worked at you know, 100 companies for you know, over a 200-year period of time, right? We just, that hasn't, that, that can't possibly happen. You can only be in one place at one time. So when you do that, um, the mis- you're often making huge mistakes. And so the model that we recommend uh, is, is, is MMI, mimic, master, innovate. So um, before you try to you know, just come up with your own way of doing it or make decisions on that, first figure out what the winners are doing. And that can take a lot of time to right. go, figure out what they're doing and just mimic what they're doing. Um, and as you do that, then you go to the second M, which is master. So then you really master that. You go, okay, well, they, they were working with a certain platform, let's say, and now you know, we've, we've implemented that now over time, we've gotten better and better. Now we feel like we're pretty good at that. Um, and then the last one is innovate. So you innovate after you're already standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, then you can go start doing you know new stuff because you've already got all the best practices in place. So I think, you know, that that's one really key, prin- you know, key principle is that the the intelligence is not in the building. Like I remember I, I, at some point I had an executive say, why don't we just get all the executives in a room and go have a retreat for, you know, a week and let's just figure out how we're going to do all this. And (laughs) the problem is, well, there's no possible way that what the right thing that we should do is just in the brains of those eight people right. It's almost certainly outside of that group, right. We, we just, our, our amount of experience is just so small, given there's just eight of us right, that we can't possibly get there. And so what, you know, what we really know, eventually, you know, we might get together and bring in and, you know, bring in the best practices and kind of talk about how they apply to us. So there still might be reasons for a group like that, but we're not, you know, we wouldn't start with saying, let's just figure it out ourselves. I think that's a a a thing that CEOs in particular, man, I've seen so many CEOs fall for this trap where they go, man, yikes, I'm the CEO now. So I'm supposed to know everything. So I definitely am not going to be asking other people for advice because that is a sign of weakness. Yeah.
0: Such a good point.
1: And, and then they fail, right? They, they have, or, you know, or they just, they don't succeed as well as they can. So CEOs that say my job, I didn't get here because I know everything, my job is to go figure out what the best and brightest are doing, which is a continual process and, you know, bring that, you know, and then just keep bringing those in. That's my job. And, and to hire, you know, A players, which is another topic. Um, but, but yeah, so that, that that's certainly uh, one of them.
0: Love that, Matt. And and uh, again, I think the nonprofit sector is no exception to the rules you've identified. And and often leaders kind of have their heads down, focused only on their area. But your point of frankly networking, and who is best in class in whatever sector we serve in the nonprofit community, and 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 I was you know pleasantly surprised to hear even what I would assume a very competitive environment. You've worked; people are willing to open up. And I would say in the nonprofit sector. You know, if you were to go talk to another leader in your sector, I bet they are more than willing to share some of their learnings, which will only help you.
1: Yeah, I think I think people want to help others, right? Particularly in the nonprofit world, they want to help others, and they also want to show that they've been successful. So I, I do think. That's good point. Not everybody will will share their secrets, and I, you know, like I wouldn't if it was a competitor, right? <laughs> right, right. But if if I'm in an adjacent space or several spaces away. Yeah, I mean, we like to pat ourselves on the back and, you know, say how good of a job that we've done. And when we explain all that, you know, we we get to do that. Uh, if we get to, you know, if we get to mentor another CEO, let's say that feels good to us. Right. So I think my experience is most people, you know, if you approach that in a way of, you know, hey, you, you guys are doing something great here. Love to pick your brain on how you're doing it. Very few people will turn that down in my experience.
0: Yeah, it's a great point in mine as well. And I think that's just a, a good lesson among several we're talking about. Uh, let me talk about the next one, Matt, that you have good expertise on is productivity. And again, while we have maybe feel good uh, opportunities in the nonprofit space, we are still a business. We have to be productive. How did you approach productivity for your team and any of your businesses?
1: The The two things you know, jump to mine at, at, at sort of the top of the list there. So the first thing um, is that when we when we start something, when we start a nonprofit or or when let's say we start a new initiative, you know, inside of our nonprofit, we're saying, oh, we're going to plan for 2021. What initiative are we going to do this year? And we, we launch a you know a new initiative. Most of the time we spend, let's say 1% planning let, you know, which initiative we're going to do. And then 99% of our time executing that plan.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um,
1: and that is not a good idea. I think that ratio is way out of whack. We need to spend a lot more time saying, are we working on the most important thing? Um, because if if you really spend enough time on that, then you you can be 50% effective. If you're working on the number one thing, you can get an enormous amount of stuff done. But if you're you know, 90% effective, but you're working on the 10th most important thing because you really didn't get that right, yep. then it doesn't matter that you're 90% effective because you're working on something that's insignificant. And I would say the vast majority of people in the world are not working on the number one issue. I would say they're usually working on something that makes 1% of the difference that if they were working on the most important thing. Um, that, that just, I've seen that over and over and over again. Um, we just we just focus on the wrong thing. So, you know, saying, no, we're going to spend more time, gather more data, have more conversations about what is really the most important thing that we can do to achieve our goal? Or do we even have the right goals? Should we spend time saying, is this really the most important goal? Um, to me, those, those are sort of a secret of success that, you don't really you can't see from the outside when you just see somebody's been successful, like like our apps, it's not really clear why. That's often one of the reasons is they 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 did a good job of really quantifying what's the most important thing and focusing on that.
0: yeah, I love that. and and I think I know the answer to this Matt, but I'm guessing you integrated strategic planning throughout the annual cycle. You know I think a lot of organizations have that one annual retreat. But it, it, that seems to me to be your point of, all right, you spent 1% of your time planning and 99% doing. How did you integrate strategic planning and thinking into your operation?
1: I mean, I think what I tend to do is is less of, I, I would tend to think of it more of like it might be the only thing that we do for six months is strategic planning. Really, it, it wouldn't necessarily, and then we might not do it again for four years. I mean, and then right. we would do some high level planning, but I, I tend to, to, you know, think of that as, you know, are we, you know, going in the right direction? And so, yeah, I'll, i I think really with this, with this, um, this human improvement project, we probably spent a year on doing nothing, but what's the most important thing, right? So, um so it's less to me of an ongoing thing and more of like, don't start, you know, doing the work until you're sure you're you're working on that right thing. But then when that's done, you don't have to spend a huge huge amount of time on. It. In fact, then I actually kind of flip to the other extreme where, once I know I'm working on the most important thing, I I actually want to do a lot of experiments and I don't need to, to overthink every experiment. I know I'm working on the biggest problem, so let's go launch 10, 20 different experiments where I spend a little bit of money on each one. Fail Double, fast. I'm sorry.
0: Sorry to interrupt you, but fail fast. Is that fail kind fast. of the mindset to some extent?
1: That's right. Fail fast. And you, if you overthink the experiments, you'll often talk yourself out of a good experiment. <laughs> That's a good point we just don't have enough knowledge to know that this is definitely a bad experiment. And this is definitely a good one. And the more experiments that you do, the more you'll, you'll say something like, oh, wow, this one that I thought was going to fail worked. And this one that I was pretty sure was going to work failed. So that's, you know, really, and that's because there's these factors that you didn't know at the time, right? There's so many factors out there. So I'm a big believer in spend a ton of time planning, make sure you're working on the most important thing. and then once you've decided this is it, this is the most important thing that we can work on, then um, do lots of little experiments and then take those experiments and when they work, say what what lesson did we learn from this? why did this work? what's what do we think is is fundamentally happening here at you know almost like a, a science level right and same thing with it when it failed well we thought that was going to work it didn't work rather than just saying well we're just not going to do that anymore answering the question why did that fail what do we believe is the underlying reason why that failed and then you start into you know you start kind of putting together this model where you have you know underlying reasons why things fail underlying reasons why things are successful you build better and better experiments but you know i was just telling a ceo of one of my companies today he he was saying like we were reviewing some of the, the marketing work that they were doing. And he said, Matt, you know, we are, you know, we've done, we've got A pluses in some of these areas, but I got to tell you, we also have some experiments that are just Fs. And what I told him is that's what I want to hear. I that's want good. to you know, yeah. see that, that you're failing. If you're not, you know, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. And we're, we're missing too many things here. So, uh, you know, I, o- over time, I want to see that the end results are going Case that the number of leads are growing, but the individual experiments, it's perfectly fine for those to fail. I
0: think that's fantastic. And I'm struck by the fact that you you can course correct in real time with that approach, right? Because I sadly talked to a nonprofit executive director who was just, um, you know, disillusioned by their current plan, but felt like they were kind of stuck on a three year strategic planning trajectory. And your approach, one, would be more thorough at the front end. And you could adapt very quickly if things weren't working.
1: Definitely. Yeah, you definitely should not stay on a bad plan and keep going. I mean, I think, uh, and so we absolutely will change course. Um, and sometimes, you know, that there is a different, well, let me say, there's a, there's some CEOs that change course every week, right? And that is not at all. <laughs> Too fast, that, yeah. They, they clearly have not done a deep enough you know, analysis to sort of conclude that, right, so I'm in no way saying that, but when new information comes in, new data comes in, um, we will definitely look at that and say, did that change, you know, something, you know, something about our plan uh, and adjust to it.
0: Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, Matt, you've been a champion also of, of the importance of a players on your team. And of course, everybody says, I think in a vague sense, well, yeah, of course we want better people, but maybe talk about the importance of a players and how you build a team that includes that type of talent.
1: Sure. So the, the first thing is how do we define a players? And so I have, uh, I have two terms that, that I use, um, one of them is A player, which there was a book, I think it's called like Top Grading. Uh, I'm going to forget that, that. Sounds
0: familiar. Yes. Yeah, I'm
1: pretty sure that's the name of, it. but I, I've used their terminology for that, um, which is an A player is the top 10% of somebody that you could get for the position that you're advertising for the pay that you're giving. So, you know, in the nonprofit world, pay isn't necessarily as high as, you know, is in the, uh, the let's say the for-profit world. But if we say, okay, we have this role, it pays this much money. Um, your job isn't to find somebody who really earns three times that much, right? That's not an A player for that role. It's the top 10%, top 10% of people who, you know, will work and be happy in that role, you know, making that kind of money. So that's what I call an A player. A rock star is a top 1% player. Right Now, what I do is I'm We basically insist that everybody's an A player and rock stars are almost, it's almost like you get lucky every once in a while. So I would say, you know, in my companies, uh, I probably 10% of the people are probably rock stars, and the other 90% are A players, but you have to have this mindset of, we really have to be a culture of of A players uh, and think of it like a professional sports team where everybody the quality really needs to be high enough that everyone sort of looks around the conference room table and thinks, wow, everyone in here is really good. I need to show that I'm good enough to be here. And so you have to have this discipline to say, just like a professional sports team, if somebody yes. really isn't at that level, it's not that they're a bad person. It's just they're not at the level of, you know, what we need here. Um, but if you can get to this and, and you know, I am such a big believer in that we have then you get this situation where they won't leave. And they won't leave because these A players, now they're working with people that they go, I respect everybody I work with. When I, um, you know, when I do part of a project and I hand it over to them, they also do a good job. And they think to themselves, man, I've worked at other companies before where, okay, there are some A players, but there's also a lot of people who I got really frustrated with. I might do my part of the job and then they do a, you know a poor job on their side. So it turns out that it becomes this um, environment where they won't leave. They like working with other A players. And so, uh, you know, it takes point. some discipline to do that, it, you know, uh, because it, it's, it's hard saying, you know, to somebody who is a, a B player, a solid B player, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, in this role that this is not a good fit. But if you if you allow that to happen, then a players kind of look at it as well this is like every other company so why would i stay here
0: exactly. and they
1: just you know a raise comes along at another company and they and they're gone so i think we pay a lot of lip service to it but i think there's actually very few companies that can honestly say um here's another sort of rule of thumb if i went and started another nonprofit or another company would I hire this person without interviewing anyone else? And if the answer is yes, I would, yes, I would hire them. I wouldn't even open another, you know, open a job post. That's another good sign you probably have an A player. So if you're looking around the room and say, "Uh, I mean, they're okay, but I probably wouldn't hire them again. Then you really don't have a team of A players. And that means you're going to, A players are not going to stick around. You're not going to, you know, it's not going to trend towards A players. It's going to trend away from it
0: yeah of course yeah to to underscore your point we you should keep looking, right? in other words, that, uh, resist the temptation maybe to just fill the seat if it takes longer to get that a player in the long run, that's absolutely the way to build the team that frankly is going to then retain all the other talent around the table.
1: oh, that's absolutely right. we we all get so it's it's so tedious like you know putting out uh, you know the jobs thing and weeding through resumes and all these interviews and we just, you know, we just want to hire somebody and, and <laughs> get it over with. It. Right. <laughs> yeah, but right. Um, that's a really bad approach uh, to it. So you yeah, like you said, you really want to look at it from a perspective of, look, this is, this is why I'm good as a, a hiring manager is because I will keep doing the interviews until I get to the right person. That's uh, that, you know, I think that's, that's one a key element of it. another one. That's really important is, is legitimate reference checks. So the first thing is, um, don't ever let them provide three reference checks, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I like to say Charles Manson could have given three good <laughs> reference checks. He really could have, right? Yeah. Could have three yeah. people who would say, Chuck's a great guy, right? Um, that's a terrible way of doing it. What you should always do is along the course of the interview, um, ask who they worked for and how long they worked for somebody. So let's say they worked at Disney. Um, you said, okay, you worked at Disney for two years. Yes. Okay. Who did you work for at Disney? And they'll say Bob. Now, usually they'll say Bob was their, the one who's going to give them the best reference, even though you haven't asked for that yet. They know Bob's the guy who liked them. So they'll, they'll say Bob. But then you say, well, how long did you work for Bob? And they might say, oh, uh, Okay, just the last six months. Uh All right. Well, and then what you basically want to get is the timelines of all their managers. And then you find out Sally is who they worked for for two of the three years at Disney, right? That is who you're going to call at Disney, is Sally, right? And then at the next company, you go through all that again. So your three reference calls should not be to the three people they cherry pick. It should be to basically the three longest managers that they had. Now, in some cases, they'll say, look, this person, you know, Sally was got checked into a mental institution. Yeah, I had a problem with
0: her, right, or whatever. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, there's all sorts of, and and sometimes that plays out. I mean, sometimes then I might say, okay, well, you know, I might talk to some other people in that organization and they would say, yeah, it's the candidate you're talking to, Matt, really is good. It really was a bad manager here, right? That, that, you know, you want to verify that. But that's a huge issue. And then when you talk to those people, you want to ask the question, how did my candidate rank in that group? So you had, you know, let's say it was a salesperson, you had 10 people in your sales group. Okay, where did the candidate, we'll call him Joe, where did Joe rank out of the the 10 people in that sales group? Or maybe uh, if there weren't very many people, maybe there were only two people in that group say, okay, well, of all of the salespeople you've worked with over the last 10 years, you know, hiring manager, which, uh, how does how does Joe rank in that group? And if if they say one of the best or top 10%, they usually say that pretty quick. They'll start hemming and hawing. When they start doing a lot of hemming and hawing, and, well, he's a really nice guy. And then you kind of know they're not 10%. The, the top 10% are they'll tell you pretty quick uh, and you'll get the feeling like they're not going to think very highly of you if you don't hire them. Cause you're obviously not a good hiring manager, right? You'll get that sense. So those are other you know things that you can increase the odds that you'll get that a player.
0: Great advice, Matt, as you have done throughout this conversation and of course, I want to thank you, you and your wife. Of course, have been very generous and and supporting causes. I guess maybe that maybe is a good final question. Is there advice for nonprofit leaders, and or maybe related to that? Is what are you looking for in terms of charitable causes or nonprofit organizations you support? And maybe that, of course, will help our listeners think about these characteristics you see.
1: Well, in terms of organizations I support, I mean, to me, it's it really is about efficiency. So I think. We often, you know, a lot of people will give money to build a park, right? It feels good, right? It it's all sort of happy, you know, feelings that may not necessarily be a very productive use of money. Um, right. So to me, it's really about what is an effective use of money. What is really high impact? So are you working on a really big issue? Um, there are, um, you know, organizations like I think GiveWell is one of them that kind of focuses on that of saying, okay, we try to use some mathematical formulas to say which charities sort of, you know, uh, make the biggest difference, you know, and sort of a bang for the buck uh, perspective. Right. I, I I would say, you know, you, again, it's the same thing. Like I always want to be working on the biggest issue. So there are some issues that are close to, you know, the, the size that that we're dealing with, um, you know, right now, there's, there's maybe another three issues that sort of, I consider to be as critical as the the ones that we're dealing with. But, you know, so I kind of do this, the same approach there of, of, you know, make sure you're working on the most important thing first. And then once you've decided on that, you know, go uh, say, well, how's, what's the most effective thing I can do to fix that?
0: yeah it makes total sense and i think organizations can in fact do a better job of articulating you know that they are doing that or they need to think about how they strategically plan to assure someone like you that might support them, uh, you know, that they're doing the right things. Like everything else, Matt, I'm grateful for your insight and advice, as I know our listeners are. And if I can ask you for one other parting gift, maybe, is there a book you'd recommend? I ask every guest if there's a book that's been meaningful to you on your journey that perhaps would be good for our listeners to consider as well.
1: Sure. Well, well. first, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give, the, uh, I'll throw a book out there. First, let me sort of throw in a plug for, our, you know, we're a nonprofit. It's a completely free app, uh, The Happy Child. I do think our research has shown it's probably the most significant thing you can do for your family nice. uh, in, let's say, a five-year period. So I'll say that first. But in terms of books, you um, there's a book called "Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child" uh, by John Gottman. Oh yeah, G O T T M A N. Think that's a great book. Um, so th- that's what I would recommend.
0: That's fantastic, and. Of course, the app, is is that where you'd like to send our listeners? We'll put in the show notes or where they can find out more about you and the, the great work you're doing through the app or other that, instances.
1: That's that's the best way is to download the, ha- the, the app, The Happy Child. You can also go to our website, which is humanimprovement.org.
0: Perfect. We will include that in the show notes for sure. And Matt, thank you again for joining me on the path.
1: Thank you for having me on, Patton.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Matt as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and maybe enhance your own approach to entrepreneurial leadership. Don't forget the show notes are available at our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Matt, the Human Improvement Project. And if you've got kids or know someone that does, make sure you tell them to check this out because he's got some great resources on his website as well. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe by going to the podcast page at pattenmcdowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.